Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. I'm Roger, that's Rob. You know, it's, it was an emotional week last week for a lot of people. Uh, and it remains emotional. Maybe not to the, the same heightened degree. Uh, but Rob, last Friday, as we wrapped up a week of uh, some exhaustive coverage of the uh, the, the Fort McMurray fire, um, you know, we tried to, to fill in the blanks as much as possible, try and, and, and color in the picture, let people know exactly what's going on up there. Uh, but one of the stories that is is... I'll say literally impossible to tell is uh, the toll that's being exacted on those wild firefighters, those individuals who are on the front lines, who are staring the, the, the flames in the face and trying to protect northern communities, trying to control these wildfires. And the reason why it's literally impossible to tell those stories is because they don't take a few minutes to do a quick little phone interview at the radio station. They're a little bit busy doing something that r- none of us can do. Oh, clearly. Um, and I mean, it's it's been an immense effort because uh, I think of how big and how intense and how quick quickly moving this this fire was. And uh, you know, we had those days last week where no one was sure which way the wind was going to push these fire. No one was going to sure. I mean, even go back to the start of this crisis and when it was Monday and, and it seemed as though this this fire was not going to threaten Fort McMurray. And, and they talked about what a, a good day it was. And even some of the reporters who'd been up there covering it were getting ready to to head home as the story had ended. So it, it, things can change quickly. And uh, this became a, a major catastrophe rather quickly. But there was um, a great deal of effort that went into to saving certain neighborhoods in Fort McMurray, keeping this fire at bay. And, you know, we heard Darby Allen, the fire chief up there, describe this as, as a beast. And that's kind of became the nickname for this fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to try to battle this beast, knowing that they weren't going to win. They weren't going to win the battle. They weren't going to put out this fire. Uh, but they had to limit the damage. And you think about how difficult that is, how dangerous that is, and at times how disheartening that is, knowing that uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, it is unwinnable until the rain comes to your rescue. So as we were hoping, wishing that we could sort of illustrate that picture a little bit better for you, uh, in, in our laps falls this email from someone who listens to our program. The email starts with, thanks for your continuing coverage of the Fort Mac fire situation but goes on to detail eight years fighting wildfires on the front line. And this email ends with, the reason we won't hear from these guys and gals is because they are in a place where no one but them are allowed or want to be. I hope all these guys and gals get home safe and sound. I hope they enjoy the moment and have a blast doing it. As crazy as it can get, and as scary as it can get, it is still the greatest job in the world. Those are the words of Nathan McGee, who joins us on the phone now. Nathan, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you. Uh, thanks very much for that email from last week. Ain't no problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that got a ton of reaction, yeah. right? Roger read that on the air, Nathan, uh, and people were texting us. Can you guys please post that? Can you share it? We want to share it. And um, it, it was it was crazy how it resonated. Yeah, I just w- tried to give a little bit of insight to people out there to give them a bit of an idea what uh, 
what's going on out there. It's one piece of a big puzzle, but in my mind, probably one of the most important pieces. Yeah, I mean, can, can we talk, we want to talk about um, just what that job entails. I mean, like the, the, the emotion in your letter that we read was 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 very raw, but there's also like the, I don't know, there's just so much that, that, that seems to go into it. It's such a mysterious profession because like we said, you know, before Nathan, we, we never get a chance to interview these people. They're always either in the thick of it or they're kind of seem to be hiding in the woods. I mean, start start there for me. If, if you're not actively fighting a wildfire, where are you? Are you are you in town or are you in a camp somewhere? Um, like on the big fire, you mean like in this situation, like where would you be if you weren't on the line, or what are you doing when you're not fighting fires? No, um, like like maybe a week before this whole fire started, where where would these guys and gals have been? Probably on a like more than likely on an initial attack or a fire base training. Um, all we did was train. We would our days would start. Uh, we'd do a pack walk. So you put a bag of hose on your back, say 70 pounds of gear, go for a couple kilometer walk. Uh, some guys would go for jogs. We'd mix it up a bit just to, you're always trying to be in the best shape as you possibly can be. Uh, so we do a lot of that stuff, a lot of training, a lot of pump training, a lot of hose lay training. Uh, you just get into that uh, muscle memory kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we would um, grab our gear, jump in a truck, find a pond or a ditch or somewhere where if we could get water and we would just uh, do our train. Like we would just train. It was just training, training, training so that when you did get called out, it was just instinctive almost. You're you're in that mindset where you're just ready to go. And uh, yeah, we trained. <laughs> there was There was never, there was always time for training. So when you get called in, when you get that call that you need to respond, and, and you arrive at a scene. I mean, what, what's job number one when, when dealing with a situation like this? So we'd, we'd fly in. Uh, it was initial attack, uh, firefighter for eight years. So there was four of us based to a helicopter. You'd have a crew leader that sat in the front uh, beside the pilot. And the rest of the crew would sit in the back of the machine. We'd get dispatched. We'd get uh, coordinates. We'd head towards that coordinates. The crew leader was relaying information back to the fire base. Uh, fire behavior, um, that kind of stuff. If we could see the column, so if you get up in the air, you're say two, three thousand feet in the air, you could start to see like the black column, and you knew what you were dealing with. Um, the darker the smoke, the more intense it was. If it was like a lighter smoke, you knew it was maybe in like a deciduous, uh, like a poplar stand or something. But when you saw that black smoke, you knew you're in for a pretty wild day. And uh, so we would circle the fire, looking for values like. Uh, houses, cottages, um, logging equipment, and values went as far as uh, logging rights too. There was a lot of um, logging operations or oil and gas operations. So you're you're concentrating on anything that had any significant value. Um, Trying to get the, that was the big thing, was looking for people Mm -hmm. and then trying to come up with a plan and how we were going to attack it and call in water bombers and there was a lot of pressure, I guess you could say, put on the crew leader because he had to make the decisions that he would have to make would be, I need one tanker versus five tankers or the fire behavior is such and such that start dispatching um, fire crews by, by road. So our base, we'd have uh, guys ready to go on the helicopter. We'd have trucks loaded with fire gear. So each crew would have a like a crew cab loaded with gear and then 
you just say, okay, start sending crews, and we'll let you know when to stop kind of thing. Right. So, and then what's what's the strategy then? Is it, do you basically uh, go in with the mindset, let's put this fire out, or is it let's contain this fire and, you know, hope that the weather can, can be an asset? You're, you want to put it out. Yeah. So we would get uh, tankers running ahead of the fire, so they would run strips of, uh, say, fire retardant or foam or water, whatever these tankers could hold. You'd want them to, if they could attack the head, that'd be great just to knock down, because that's where all the activity was. The fire's just ripping through, and you'd, they, you'd want them to concentrate on the head just to try to uh, prevent any forward progress, attack the flanks. We would always try to come in from the rear. That was just the safest way, and then work our ways up the flanks um, with hose or hand tools or whatever we could use, and then make your way to the head of the fire. And that was always... A little sketchy just because that's where you'd have your more fire uh, active fire behavior and where things were a little bit more intense uh, and we would just you try to circle the fire and get a good solid perimeter put in place and then work your way from the outside in until it was out so is it about you know especially with a fire this big and, and what we saw around fort mcmurray was just enormous that it's it's about containment then basically now yeah like that that type that fire that's happening now has never been seen before like this is you're rewriting the books on everything on how to attack fire and fire behavior i was listening to a lot of these fire analysts and even last week right when i was writing that letter you could when they're using words like explosive fire uh, behavior like yeah this that's just a whole different reality and there's nothing on the books to kind of fall back on for something like this. A fire this big right now, you're just concentrating on protecting any type of value, containing it. But when it's that big, you just literally sit back and just watch it go. Yeah, right. Um, you know, you talk about carrying all that hose and all those pumps, and I guess that one of the first issues you got to solve is, is where to find, <clears throat> excuse me, where to find your water that you're going to fight this fire with. But what other what other tools are you using to fight the fire? Uh, when you go in from the back, like you described, and and how like much of how much how in the fire are you? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, you're in it. Like, yeah, like we, if we didn't have uh, access to water, or um, sometimes there was access, like depending on where you were, any any type of water, like a dugout, a ditch, and anything to get something on there you would use you get helicopters uh would put a bucket on and you would direct them to put the bucket on but if you didn't have access to water you were hand tooling it so we would uh have a tool called the pulaski it's like an axe and an axe head on one end and a hole on the other we'd have shovels axes and chainsaws and we would just dig a like a fire line or a fire break around the perimeter uh when the fire gets up into the crown of the trees or the top of the trees it's pretty tough to do anything. The wind will just take it and you're pretty much done. But uh, with an active ground fire, you know, you got flame height, say less than a meter. You could pretty much just knock it out with your shovel kind of thing. But yeah, you know, you're digging, you're digging a line, you're breaking, you're trying to put a fire break in. So you're cutting tree roots, you're digging down to uh, clay or soil if you can, throw that on the flames and yeah, you're right in it. 
you know, we've been hearing about these these battles within Fort McMurray and, and trying to save certain areas and save certain neighborhoods. Uh, that it was uh, apparently a twelve hour battle to to try to save the downtown. But one of the things we've been hearing about in some neighborhoods where they would actually have to bulldoze houses to prevent fires from from spreading even further, and that, that's got to be a, a difficult decision to make. But why why would they be doing that? You're just you're putting. You, you got to remove the fuel. Um, I've been in fires where we pulled into uh, like cottage uh, areas with 135 cottages, and you'd get saw guys, and they'd just be cutting the decks off of um, the cottage. You'd cut the deck off, drag it away. Anything, as long as you can eliminate the spread. So yeah, sacrifices are going to have to be made. Uh, you bulldo- if you have to bulldoze a house, if you have to bulldoze a block of houses that's what you got to do it's there you have to take the emotion out of it yeah you realize it's somebody's house it's somebody's cottage it's somebody's business but there's a greater good i guess like the sacrifices have to be to be made and mm-hmm. that's where those decisions when you reflect back on it later yeah you you know it's not a good feeling knowing that you okay we can save these hundred houses or we can save these 50 cottages but these 20 are are gone like you you just have to make that decision and it's not easy but uh you just do it and it's for the greater good of the community so if you got guys bulldozing houses it's probably not very you know people looking from the outside in saying why are they bulldozing these houses these guys know exactly what they're doing they're trained uh schooling a lot of these guys have gone to college university uh, you know, and, and that are making these decisions, and they know exactly how these fires are going to spread because they've done it through experience. Like Fort Mac is a whole different. That's a, like I said, that's a whole different ball game. But you have to pick and choose your priorities, and I've had to do that. You fly over areas. There's co- groups of cottages, say 20 cottages, and there's a group of four. Well, you forget the four. You concentrate on saving the 20, and it's that's just what it comes down to is the best decision for for the greater yeah. situation yeah. i guess uh nathan in, in the letter you wrote us you talk about um the longest you ever worked with a day off was 46 days is that 46 days of active firefighting or <laughs> just 46 days um, in the wild um active firefighting is kind of a tricky thing to say like we get in there the initial attack we're trying to we're just trying to stop the spread so um we could go and do an initial attack we could be working on that uh, fire say four or five days we would declare it out, get back to base, um, get back thrown into rotation. So you would start at the end of the rotation. Um, and if it was a very active fire season where you're getting 40, 50 fires a day kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, you weren't, you didn't even have time to change your <laughs> socks kind of thing. You're back in it. So 46 days was on fires, off fires, mop up. But at that point, like after 46 days, after 20 days, you're you're done. Like there's really not much left in the tank but we were in situations where we just had no choice and you did it and i wouldn't yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't do it again but uh 46 days was crazy i i you're you're just there's you're just burnt to you're burnt out there's nothing left in you yeah. well you're talking to a guy who gets burnt out after five straight days of sitting in a chair <laughs> talking so <laughs> what you're talking about hey uh nathan um you also say uh you fought fires in ontario alberta bc and oregon you just kind of go where you're needed or or did your life take you to these places 
I was born and raised in uh, northern Ontario, mm-hmm. a small uh, logging area, uh, Geraldton, Ontario. And uh, I grew up around forest fires. Like, there was always something going on, and it seemed like there was always fires happening every summer. We'd get a lot of evacuees from uh, northern reserves. Um and that's how I got interested in firefighting. I volunteered at some of these evacuation centers. I volunteered one year to shuttle uh, food and supplies to these fires. And I was 18 at the time, and I just thought that was the most awesome thing ever. Mm-hmm. And when I turned 19, I took a fire course. And I did six years uh, firefighting in Ontario. I moved out to Alberta in 99, and I did one season here, uh, full fire season. It was very interesting a lot of different fire behavior and then i did go back for a couple more years to ontario to finish up my career but we would go uh, wherever we were needed so if i was based in ontario i spent more one year i spent more time up around the fort mcmurray uh, lack Labiche area than anywhere else i spent a lot of time in bc uh, vernon Kelowna area for some of the big fires down there um and oregon was just an amazing experience when when we would get strapped for resources, we would just pull from every other province or we would get a lot of a crews from the states and it went both ways. So if Alberta was burning up, we would send as many crews as we could to from Ontario to Alberta. And I really liked the way they did the program here and I figured I'd try it out for a year and I really enjoyed it. Some guys would go to uh, their off-season, they'd go fight fires in Australia because the seasons are different. Right. So, I mean, fighting fires for 10, 11 months out of the year... Um, takes a special individual doing <laughs> that but uh yeah we get shipped all over and you you had a home base but you knew it at a moment's notice you could end up in california bc oregon anywhere you were needed we'd go and just uh, some thoughts too on on the inherent danger in this which i, I suppose is obvious to even the the layman like us but I mean, you've seen it firsthand. You understand when you're there how to try to mitigate those dangers, but but some of them are, are unavoidable, I would think. Absolutely unavoidable. There's When you start thinking you know what's happening, you've already lost. As far as fighting the fires, these, you, you you have your, your knowledge and your from experience and stuff, but the unexpected is right there all the time. Uh, that one part of the story where I said where we got burnt out, I got burnt out like that many times. But the thing that sticks out in my mind about that story was um, just having to kick those guys off the machine. But to get to that point, uh, it was a long day. We were probably fighting fires for a couple weeks. Uh, we were on a big fire. We decided, you know, take a little nap. We'd have a couple guys looking out. A couple of us would catch some Zs if we could. And the radio just the radio chatter just exploded. Um, you you couldn't really make sense what was going on. There was you could hear panic in guys' voices, and we're all standing around looking around like what's going on because it was looking really calm where we were. We couldn't see any smoke, no active fire behavior. The bombers were right over ahead, within probably a hundred feet of us, like a hundred feet above us. And these things are monster machines, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you're looking around, and then we were looking through the trees and I could see a couple of guys running towards us. We all had orange coveralls on and you could see these guys running towards us. And he's like, the thing just blew up. We got to get out of here. So we get up, uh, we, we turn around, we start making it to our, our escape zone there where we had, uh, had a little helipad in a swamp area. And as we were running, I could just hear this thing ripping behind me. And yeah, it is, it's the most 
awesome sound <laughs> you could ever imagine. It's just deafening. Um, we were running, so there's a bunch of us just running for it, and uh, we hit this little swamp area where there's one of our uh, fellow firefighters. He's working on a pump that had broken down. He goes, what are you guys doing? And I didn't look back, but the look on his face when he looked over our shoulders, like his eye, he went instantly white, and his eyeballs just about popped out of his head. And that's when I turned around for the first time, and it was like literally right there, and it was just a, a wall of fire coming after us. Um, the call, the small column ended up bending over top of us, so it became like pitch black. And the things that stick out in my mind were everything became red. Like there was no other color in that light spectrum. It was just red. Everything had the same color of red, and I remember looking at my silhouette on the ground, my shadow, was so perfect and defined. It was just unbelievable. And we were running through the swamp, and then I realized I still had the 70-pound pack of hose on my back, and I threw that off. We made it back to the swamp area where the chopper was, and uh, I jumped in the front, and I'm talking to the pilot, and he's like, got pretty haywire in there, didn't it, Nate? And I was like, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Let's get out of here. And he's, well, we can't move because we've got all these uh, bombers overhead and bombers were like right on top of us. So he finally got the clear to go and he turned around and looked and he looked at me and he says, we can't leave. We got way too many guys on there. And typically you could probably fit about eight guys in the back of a machine. You'd have two guys on each side of the dog house, um, which were like gunner positions. Like a lot of these machines were used in like Vietnam. Right. So that's where the gunners would sit. But so we, there was a couple seats, so two guys on each side, and then a bench where four guys could sit. But when I looked on there, there was guys sitting on each other's laps, like three deep. So there was a guy sitting on a guy's lap, sitting on a guy's lap. And he said, we got to get half these guys out of here. And I just opened the door. And like I said in my letter, you just point to eight guys. And they all looked at me. I gave them the old heave hole with the thumb. And they all came out. And I said, well, we can't do anything. We we can't all get out of here. Um, you guys just hunker down in the swamp and we'll come back and get you. And that was the longest 10 minutes or whatever it was in my life. Right. It was just completely, it, it, I can't even describe it. Like I think, cause it, you just kind of disconnect You have to disconnect yourself from that situation because we're all going to go or we're half get like, yeah, it's yeah. one of those things you make in a split second and, you live with the consequences later, and lucky, luckily enough for myself and my uh-huh. peace of mind, we all got out of there in one piece, and yeah, we all have some good stories to tell about that uh, day for sure. No yeah. doubt you do, Nathan. The texts have just been pouring in in this interview. Uh, somebody saying, what a great guest, a great uh, guy, a great Canadian. We think of him as a hero, and he probably thinks of himself as a normal guy. Nathan McGee, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Take care. That's uh, Nathan oh, McGee. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. Let that sink in. We uh, for very long here, though, aren't we? we yeah, gotta, we, we pretty much uh, refused to take a commercial break during that conversation. So for we'll good do reason. one now. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk seven seventy. Welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Two guys who can spell O Canada. Quick, go spell O Canada. You're not your brothers. Uh, correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That's <clears throat> not O H exclamation mark H E N R Y. 
It does look weird. Very I mean, different song than the one I just spelled. The letter O on its own in any of the contacts would seem very strange. But whenever I've seen it misspelled and someone writes O-H Canada, that just it looks wrong. It looks really weird. But uh, yeah, O Canada is, is our national anthem, a song that I guess was uh, first written. Uh, well, we had, um, uh, I guess it goes back to 1880, I suppose. There was the English version uh, that was written in 1908. So it, it's been around for more than 100 years. And people seem to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's working. And it hasn't always been our national anthem. We used to sing God Save the Queen, God Save the King before that, I suppose. But it is our song. And we sing, well, we sing some of our song. I mean, like, listen, this, this, this tale, this hymn, this national anthem of ours is sacrosanct in the eyes of many. But I, but I wonder why. And I truly do. Wonder why this particular version of O Canada is so sacred that it can't be touched when the very way that we sing O Canada from time to time, the places we sing it, or even just the, the verses we choose to sing, uh, shows a bit of a disregard and irreverence for the entirety of the song. Well, you know, and look, Andrew Coyne has an interesting piece in the National Post today about why maybe we don't need to change the national anthem, why these concerns about inclusiveness are, are probably misplaced, and nobody really seriously thinks that the, the national anthem is only about about men. But uh, there, there are those who feel that just, you know, the language could be more inclusive. And this has come up many times. Mm-hmm. The latest is uh, Liberal MP Maurice Belanger. Uh, who was in the House of Commons last week as they gave this bill second reading. It's his private member's bill that would change in all thy son's command to in all of us command. I guess the added wrinkle to it this time is that uh, Belanger is is dying. He's suffering from, from ALS. And if indeed this, this bill is going to be delayed, and that's a possibility because uh, it was blocked by the conservatives, will probably be delayed until the fall, he might not live to see... Uh, the final reading of the bill. And there are those who, who have framed it in in those terms, though it's long, no longer about the merits of the bill. It's about granting a, a, a wish, I guess, to a, a dying politician, that the conservatives should drop their opposition to this uh, because it would be a nice thing to do for, for Mr. Belanger. And obviously everyone sympathizes with what he's going through. Um, but this this debate is separate. And for that matter, look, frankly, if the liberals really believe in this, uh, they can make this a government bill, mm-hmm. and th- this all becomes a moot point. Well, they might still. They're trying to shuffle the order to get it back uh, uh, before the House uh, in, in, in short order here. But, yeah, like you said, they could make it a government bill and then pass the vote on it, and it'll be, it'll be nothing. They'll kick it off to the Senate. But, you know, the point of this, and I, maybe we can put this one away uh, pretty quickly, Rob. Um, it's the government of Canada. It's not the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And, you know, this isn't the same thing as, like, loading up an airplane and taking uh, uh, some terminally ill children to Disneyland. This is the governance of our country, and it's going to be a lasting decision. So let's check our, you know, it's great to be sympathetic and and sentimental, but let's just put all that where it belongs on this matter and discuss it as though the entire nation is a stakeholder here, not just those with a soft spot in their hearts for uh, a dying man's last wish, if you will. Um. Can it, can that be all that's said about that? I mean, I know there's a rebuttal there, but we're going to ask people what they think about changing the lyrics, and I don't know if it's terribly fair to ask people uh, to be insensitive if they so feel that, if they well, feel that's the way it is. 
you could make the argument that the conservatives, they, they don't have to vote for the bill. They can still vote against it, but that they could allow it to come for a vote while we still have Mr. Belanger with us. I, I guess that would be the argument. Um, but if you oppose a bill and you've got the means by which to prevent it from even coming to a vote, uh, I think it behooves you to do that. Uh, and again, the liberals have a majority. If they, they want this to pass, they, they've got the means at their disposal to ensure that that happens. So I don't think you can put this on the conservative party. It's no surprise. They've been consistent. They don't feel the national anthem needs to be changed. And uh, they're, they're sticking to those principles. I suspect on this question, they have a lot of Canadians with them, which is probably why the liberals are a little bit leery about making this a, a government bill as opposed to a, a private member's bill. Okay, so obviously now the, the line in, in question is all thy sons command, uh, which the proposed change would be all of us command. So why don't you ask the simple question, how much of a difference does this make to you? And what exactly are we preserving by preserving the line, all thy sons command? Uh, do people rightly feel excluded from the national anthem? Surely, Rob, there are people who uh, have their own protest. They hum that part of the song, at least they claim to, or they remain silent through that part of the song, or at least they claim to. So is it worth changing if it truly is uh, exclusive of certain groups of Canadians? Well, what's interesting is that the uh, original lyrics in 1908... Uh, did not include the term in All Thy Sons Command. Uh, the original 1908 lyrics, which didn't include any reference to God either, uh, but it used the phrase, Thou dost in us command. Uh, that was changed in 1914, right on the, the beginning of the outset of, of World War I, uh, changed in 1914 to In All Thy Sons Command, which has been one of the objections raised by uh, those who favor a change is that in all thy son's command uh, did have uh, a gender specific meaning referring to uh, those sons we were, were sending off to war uh, that we should go back to thou dost and us command or something similar to it to, would be a more inclusive phrase. So the argument though, look, the, the argument that the national anthem should never change is is uh, undermined by the uh, the fact that it yeah. has changed. Well, that's just there's it. no escaping that. And there's other there's other alternate lyrics as well. Uh, true pa- true patriot love in all our hearts command, uh, which might kind of repeat the glowing hearts theme. I don't know if you feel good about that or not. But like, look, the, this national anthem we've kind of played fast and loose with it over the brief history of our nation. There are other verses to our national anthem which we never sing. The song in French is a completely different song altogether. It doesn't mirror the English version at all, only in tune. So how important is it then, the sentiment of our national anthem? And I'm going to put two things on the table right now, and then we want to hear from you. Uh, 9748255 and text us 77770. Thing number one, the reason that we're entrenched in this battle over the line, all thy sons command, is because there's some people who don't want to lose a battle to feminists. So it's basically us versus feminists, and they don't want to lose. And uh, two, I would argue that the national anthem, the lyrics of the national anthem, aren't that important to many, many Canadians uh, particularly those who are uh, fighting this battle, saying we must preserve the line uh, in all thy sons' command at all costs. So that's what, I, that's what I put to you. 
And uh, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to hear otherwise. Nine seven four eight two five five. How many people know all four verses? That would be difficult. It's like asking people what the oath, the citizenship oath is. <laughs> Canadians say it's vitally important that immigrants to this country say the oath. No natural-born Canadian can say the oath. They don't know what it is. Like there is a, a fourth verse that was added in nineteen twenty-six. I believe it is added. In 1926, and so somebody came and rewrote another verse. Right, because we get into the controversy over God keep our land glorious and free. But the fourth verse, uh, it's, it goes a lot further. Ruler supreme, who hear us humble prayer, hold our dominion in thy loving care. Help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward as waiting for the better day we ever stand on guard. God keep our land glorious and free. Uh, and then the O Canada refrains. So that that's more like a, a church hymn than a national anthem. Uh, but that's the fourth verse. Here's a text message, too. It's Canadians doing what Canadians do. We change any and all aspects of life to appease the minority. This in like and what? of itself. <laughs> well, I know this is a this is a common belief, right, that we're constantly bending over backwards to accommodate minorities in this country. This in and of itself is who we all are. We are kind and gentle, great white north, but really leave it be. It's good the way it is. I don't think anybody is suggesting that it's entirely bad the way it is, just that it could be even more inclusive of many groups of people. Uh, and then there's this text. Change it. Don't change it. I don't care. See, that's how most Canadians feel about it. Yeah, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Where do we most often sing the national anthem? Where do we most often hear O Canada? At a hockey game. Right. And what are we holding in our hands when we're singing O Canada? Uh, maybe a, a puck, possibly. To, maybe, a beer. Yeah, yeah, usually a beer. <laughs> and uh, do we uh, ever drink that beer where we're, where we're singing O Canada? Or your hat. You should have your hat in your hand, I guess. You should have your hat off. Yeah, you should be singing. I mean, r- really, if we had this kind of great reverence for O Canada... We'd be locking people up when they act like shenanigans during the national anthem. But I just think that this it's its really cheap rhetoric for us to claim that, oh, this song is sacrosanct. It shall never change. When in fact, that song should constantly be reflecting the people of today and not just uh, the vision of the country when it was founded or when the song was changed in 1967, which, by the way, uh, what are we about halfway through the lifespan on this song? We we should have had uh, <laughs> we well, somebody about thirty years ago should have written the anthem. We'll be singing in twenty sixty seven if we're going to stay on this trail, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I I don't think people like the notion of opening the door to constant revisions. Where we change this now, what are we going to change next year? What are we going to change after that? I, I get that that would be uh, annoying and, and frustrating, but at, at the same time. I, I don't know that you can make the argument that the, the anthem should never change except all those times it did. But that's it. Uh, that we should either go back to, to 1908 then, I guess. Um, this one here says uh, the 1914 version is fine. We have to stop accommodating everyone coming to our country and respect the people that started this country. This is not a, a, an immigrant, uh, yeah. multicultural kind of argument. We're talking about men and women. There have been men and women in this country uh, <laughs> since day one. It wasn't as though it was just men in this country and then a bunch of women uh, immigrated here like 40 years later. Uh, there have always been men and women in this country. All right, somebody, by the way, we're about to go to a commercial break here. Then we want to hear from you. We'll open up the phone lines. 974-8255. Let us know what you think. And the arguments for either keeping it the same or changing it in, in your mind. 
But someone asked uh, to translate the French version of O Canada. It's been done a couple of times. Uh, but it basically means uh, O Canada. It goes, O Canada, land of our ancestors, terre de nos ailleurs, your brow is wreathed with glorious flowers, mm-hmm. uh, and your arm holds the sword. So it's ready to carry the cross. Yes, he's ready to carry the cross. Uh, Thy history is epic. That's the best line in all the different versions. Of the most most brilliant exploits. Thy valor steeped in faith will protect our homes and our rights. Protect our homes and our rights. I think that's, Uh, personally, I think that's the best version of the song. Well, it's funny because the the word Canada Mm -hmm. only appears once. Whereas in the English, there's one, two, three, four times you say Canada. That's interesting. Uh, well, let's take a break then. 974-8255, Texas 77770, talking about O Canada as uh, a bill works its way through Parliament. Uh, it's received second reading, but uh, it's unclear when and if third reading is going to take place. And again, as we mentioned, whether it'll take place while its uh, sponsor is is still alive. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Right, 974-8255, talking about uh, O Canada. Uh, attempts have been made periodically over the years to to change that one particular lyric from uh, In All Thy Sons Command to In All of Us Command, and uh, it's come up again. Now we've got a, a liberal majority government, so I suspect that makes this somewhat more likely, but it's no guarantee either. <laughs> I'm taking it. I'm taking it on the text message boards here. When I said the French message is better. Pack your bags and go. I bid you adieu, sir. <laughs> um, look, I mean, it's 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 funny it's to more me. Dramatic. Right? Well, you know, I like some of the lines, right? And and look, I grew up. I went to French immersion uh, for elementary school and stuff like that. So uh, I remember, you know, singing the French, singing the English, and then that hybridized version that we get at at hockey games from time to time. And that line that stood out to me was. Tony Suarez in Epopée des Plus Brillantes Exploits, which was like your history is an epic of the most brilliant exploits, and you should start there. Like that line alone should set you off on a mission to understand the the, the courage and the grit it took to settle this country. It's amazing, and, and I think that that's why I appreciate the French version a little bit more. Uh, Peter has called in. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hey, how are you today? We're splendid, thanks. Good. I'm a crabby old man. Okay. <laughs> um, not that old, but I grew up in San Francisco in the 70s. I'm originally from Montreal, so I don't wow. think redneck or closed-minded is going to fit my hat. <laughs> but enough deconstructing the foundations that built this country. Enough. This is the thin end of the wedge. We're going to take God out because God offends people. i sorry, man. Your cat's ugly, too. And then we're going to take men out because men offend other people. At what point do we stop? Well, what, what, what point we did we start, committee? though? Should we appoint a committee... To manufacture some lyrics and make sure they're properly dry cleaned before we present them to the rank and file? Or can we just have the lyrics that were written to celebrate the country that our parents fought for as it grew? Over which lyrics? Yeah. They, because, again, I mean, the, the argument that it shouldn't change and should be left alone is undercut by the fact that it was changed several times. Right. And, and, and you know, how many pairs of pants did you wear as a kid? I'm not being funny here. I'm serious. I mean, we grow into things, right? But when's the last time the lyrics were changed? But, Peter, your argument, though, about, about uh, uh, singing the song that uh, was the national anthem of our nation that our parents and grandparents fought for, this isn't the song. 
Well, they've changed it since World War II. Yeah. They've changed it since World War II. What did they sing, change it to? They changed it from God Save the Queen. Oh, no, 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 no. They came down with the Dominion. They came down with the Dominion. We're changing flags. We're changing flags here. They came down with the Dominion. Matter of fact, I remember my mother in tears as they brought down the, the Red Ensign. Yeah. And brought up, and brought up the, uh, the Maple Leaf. That's a little tip about how old I am. And when you, when you looked at your mother in tears as they switched the Red Ensign, as we, we left the Union Jack to fly under our own banner, how did you personally feel? I didn't get it. I was five years old. What are you crying for? <laughs> I saw her crying when they were. I saw her crying at Bobby Kennedy's hearse going by too. I mean, I saw quite a lot of things on TV. But the fact is, we've got to stop this. I mean, well, Canada, but, but, Canada but, has a problem. Canada's a problem. Opposite the Americans, the Americans get by on great gusts of patriotic fervor. Good for them. But Canada seems to have the opposite problem. We have this. Well, the Americans like issue. to change things too. They they went around and added uh, God to the uh, currency and, and God to the Pledge of Allegiance uh, in the 1950s. Sure. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're not sticking to the original versions either. But what, what did we change though? Because God is still in the anthem, Sons is still in the anthem. You, you know, you say we got to stop making all these changes, but what have we done? What what changes? Here's another thing that, that plucked my string, too, that I found offensive. The fact that now this is coming up again, but how are we going to help facilitate this? How are we going to help pull that molar and get it by society at large? Well, you know, this guy's... Yeah, I know, he's, I, he's, I, I know, he's what, on, yeah. he's I know what you mean by that, Peter. You're not going to go police people at the hockey game for singing it the old way. And, and well, yeah, you're 100% no, correct. But, you know, no. the point is to make it official, right? To have the, the, the government's official position be uh, completely gender inclusive for whatever uh, silliness that seems to be worth in the context of the national anthem. But I, yeah. I, I, I kind of I dig where you're coming from uh, on this one, Peter. I just don't understand why people are fighting tooth and nail for something that is clearly not that sacred to most Canadians. A lot of the old guys like myself, and I will speak for my peers. As a matter of fact, one of my closest friends moved here five years ago from England, and he reminds us of all the things we take advantage of, the things that he still appreciates. That's another story. But I look at the fact they're using the impending death of a private member, that's that's sorry I got I got to dig in my heels against that the way I dig in my heels uh, at at uh, the checkout counter when they try to oh do you want to donate this and that and they're shaming you into shaming you into doing something they're motivating you with guilt that's kind of a low blow. Man, oh man, I, mean, Peter, uh, I, I wish we could order another beer right now. This is a fun chat. Well, <laughs> hang on, hang on a second here. Hang on a second here, Peter. Do you, you don't think you're guilting people just a little bit by talking about our, our forefathers and the people that founded this country and how much it meant to them and, and you know, your, your tearful mother? I, I'm, getting a li- I'm getting a bit of that vibe from, from what you're saying here. I'm sorry. That's not the point of my remark. The point of my remark is we built something. Let's stand on it and smile. Well, what do we build, though? Okay, well, uh, okay. let me throw this out as an alternative example. The Americans, a lot of their history is embellished. We don't have to embellish Isaac Brock or Tecumseh. We simply are what we are. The problem is Canada lacks that necessary yeah, self-awareness. It's well, been overrun. Nah, I think Canada by, lacks a lot of self-awareness and things that we've washed out, whitewashed. Well, we've got some very interesting history that has really come to the forefront in the past exactly, 15 years. And we're exactly. not, no, not, not stuff we're proud of either. Exactly. We still we still have people who look at the residential schools, for example, and say, "Ah, let just get over it. That's really not a problem of my generation." Well, they say, they say I've heard it said, and I'm inclined to agree. The last perfect guy was nailed to a cross, so I don't think I want to be too perfect to look forward. <laughs> okay. We grew up, I mean, we grew up as a nation, we grew up as a people, we're growing up now as we speak, we're growing, we're getting wiser. Every time we open our mouths, every time we have a little bit of discourse like this, we're growing older, we're getting wiser. But I don't think 
that we need to hand wring on our national anthem. Well, but Peter, I think you've just made a really good argument for changing it. I mean, I, I can't I can't say that I, I feel it'll make a lick of difference in this country if we officially change the line in the national anthem. But if we're to make decisions on policy or on, on you know, things like official songs and symbols based on the nation that we're growing into, then I think you just made a slam dunk argument for changing the, uh, the line in the song to all of us command. Uh, I'm still going back to my point about let's not embrace our own tendency towards self-loathing. That's all. <laughs> all right. So yes, we're growing. We accept that. Okay. Okay. Great Thanks phone call, Peter. Much. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate the phone call. All right. So you know he's he's a passionate guy, and I think a lot of people probably uh, agree with much of what he said. What about the argument, though, that we're not changing the lyrics so much as we're reverting back to how it was originally written? Thou dost in us command. <laughs> is how it was written in 1908. So if we want to take that logic, let's seize and embrace the way it was originally written back in 1908. Can we just change it to Raise a Little Hell by Trooper? <laughs> well, it's also played at every hockey game. It makes sense. Yeah, that's true. All right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into something else that uh, I think is going to be provocative coming up after 1130. Uh, should everybody who gets in the vehicle, puts the key in the ignition, have their breath scanned for alcohol? And we may be getting to that point. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.